Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Stephanie. I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, Living with Gastrointestinal Stromal Tumors, or GIST. Um, this program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as GIST organizations, GIST Cancer Research Fund, GIST Support International, Life Raft Group, so many groups that are actually working with us to help spread the word about this program. And because of that collaboration, we have been able to reach so many of you on the call today. We have over 712 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from many different regions of the United States. And we also have international participants from Austria, Bulgaria, Denmark, Canada, Costa Rica, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you really come from all over the world, and it's really a credit to you that you are choosing to spend this next hour with us. Today's program was supported by a grant from Genentech and Pfizer, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program, but also for their collaborative corporate uh, efforts to support this program today. That's really very important. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Heinrich, and Dr. Heinrich is Professor of Medicine, Professor of Cell Developmental and Cancer Biology, Hematology and Medical Oncology, OS, OHSU, Knight Cancer Institute, Section Chief, Hematology and Medical Oncology, Portland VAMC. Uh, Dr. Heinrich is going to be addressing the overview of GIST, um, summary of the treatment of GIST, and communicating with the healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Heinrich. Uh, thank you. Um, good morning or good afternoon, depending on your time zone. Um, I'd like to talk about three main topics in my time. First, I'll talk about an overview of GIST just to lay the landscape of what GIST is. I'll briefly summarize uh, the different treatments for GIST, although most of the modern targeted treatment uh, discussion will be uh, provided by Dr. George. And then I'll have some comments about uh, communicating or actually, more importantly, identifying your health team. So gastrointestinal stromal tumor, or GIST, is a type of cancer known as a sarcoma. Sarcomas are cancers of connective tissues that hold organs together. So we think more commonly about cancers like lung cancer, which is a cancer of the lung. Sarcomas can arise in any organ um, because they're the tissues that hold things together. GIST is a type of sarcoma that arises in the GI tract, so it's restricted in where it can be found. Um, it's uncommon. About 6,000 to 7,000 patients are diagnosed with GIST each year. Most patients uh, diagnosed with GIST are older than age 50, but GIST can occur in, in, at any age, even in uh, children or teenagers. For reasons that are unclear, GIST are slightly more common in men than women. The most common place where a GIST would start is in the stomach, and about 70% of cases of GIST arise in the stomach, but they can also arise in the small intestine or the colon, or less commonly in the esophagus, which is the tube that leads from the mouth to the stomach. Most cancers of the GI tract actually start in the lining cell, so when we think of typical stomach cancer or colon cancer, we're talking about something known as adenocarcinoma that starts in the lining cells. 
The cells that give rise to GIST are actually specialized pacemaker cells that are found uh, in the wall of the GI tract. And these pacemaker cells help organize digestion and move food and waste from one end to the other. In most cases of GIST, there's no obvious reason why someone developed the GIST. Um, nothing that we know of increases your risk of GIST, so common things like tobacco, alcohol, diabetes, drugs, where you work, uh, or things you might be exposed to, as far as we know, have no influence on whether you develop a GIST or not. It seems to be random. Not all GIST tumors are cancerous, um, but as they become larger, they usually or sometimes will produce some type of symptoms. So sometimes they cause bleeding into the digestive tract, and so patients may notice red blood in their bowel movements, or they may be black and tarry. Um, sometimes people become anemic due to iron deficiency. If there is more brisk bleeding, especially in stomach, in some cases patients might vomit blood. Other signs and symptoms of GIST include um, abdominal pain, or fullness, loss of appetite, weight loss, constipation, fatigue. In rare cases, if there's a very large tumor, patients may actually be able to feel what's going on in the inside by pushing on their abdomen. Although many patients with GIST have some signs or symptoms, in many cases they are found by accident um, when a medical procedure is performed for some other reason. For example, your doctor might think you have a gallbladder problem or a kidney stone, and they perform a CT scan looking for that problem, and then a GIST could be identified. Very commonly these days, small GIST tumors are found during endoscopy procedures when patients are having uh, endoscopes placed in their stomach to evaluate ulcers or problems with severe heartburn or reflux. In general, there are no blood tests that can tell if you have GIST, but your doctor usually will order some anyway uh, to identify other important factors about your health. The, the results of these tests may alert your doctor to the possibility of a tumor. For example, <clears throat> if you're found to be iron deficient, this would lead your doctor to suspect that you might be bleeding somewhere in your GI tract. In order to confirm the presence of a GIST, it's necessary to visualize it in some way. This could be an X-ray, which could be a computed tomography or CT scan, magnetic resonance imaging or MRI, PET scans, or direct visualization using an endoscope or a colonoscope. In order to diagnose GIST, it is necessary for something to be biopsied or removed so that the pathologist can look at it under the microscope and make the diagnosis. Although in many cases we might be suspicious of a GIST um, based on patient symptoms or x-rays, Really, we only could know that a patient has a GIST if they have a pathology test. Once the diagnosis is made of GIST, then um, decisions are made about treatment. The first decision-making usually involves around the role of surgery. Surgery is the top treatment choice if you have a tumor which is not spread. So if a tumor, a GIST tumor is found in your stomach and scans show that there is no spread outside the stomach, then surgical removal would be the preferred treatment. For tumors that are small or in locations that are easy to get to like the stomach, 
the tumor could be removed by something called laparoscopic surgery. This is done by the surgeon making very small incisions in the abdomen, putting in a videoscope so the surgeon can see what's going on the inside, and then using small robotic arms inserted through other small incisions to locate the tumor and remove it. If your tumor is larger, then it's not possible to remove it through a laparoscope procedure because the incision won't allow the tumor to be removed from your body, and then you would have a more standard surgical incision. Unlike other cancers where it's important to look and remove lymph nodes to determine if the cancer is spread, in the case of GIST, uh, it rarely spreads to lymph nodes, so the surgeon usually does not have to uh, do extra procedures to remove nearby lymph nodes. In some cases, when, the pa when a patient is diagnosed, the tumor is in a difficult location or is too large to be easily removed. In that case, your doctor or your surgeon may work with a medical oncologist to give a targeted treatment to shrink the tumor before the surgery. Once the tumor has shrunk down to a more manageable size, the surgery can proceed. And Dr. George will talk more about the types of targeted treatments that might be used um, before surgery. Now, after surgery, the tumor needs to be very care carefully analyzed by an experienced pathologist who is used to looking at just tumors. Besides examining the tumor to make a diagnosis and measuring how large it is, the pathologist also needs to perform certain other tests. It's very important that the pathologist make an estimate of something called the tumor's mitotic index. The mitotic index is an estimate by the pathologist or a quantification by the pathologist of how rapidly the tumor might be dividing and growing. Using the location of the tumor, the size of the tumor, and the mitotic index provided by the pathologist, your doctors and healthcare team can then um, make a risk assessment of the likelihood of the tumor coming back. In some cases, tumors may have a very small risk of coming back or recurring, um, less than 5% or even less than 2% of cases. In other cases, uh, the risk might be quite high, more than 80 or 90%. This risk assessment is important in helping doctors decide whether or not you should receive additional treatment after your surgery. In some cases, it's necessary to uh, take a drug treatment with a medicine called imatinib or Gleevec, which Dr. George will describe or talk about uh, after me. The, but it has been found that taking uh, Gleevec for up to three years after surgery can decrease the risk of recurrence for patients whose tumor is at high risk of recurring. For other patients, if the risk is low, it is not necessary to take uh, the Gleevec. So it's very important, since not everybody needs to take Gleevec, that you, you should discuss your risk of tumor recurrence with your doctor to determine what is my risk and should I take Gleevec or not. Whether or not you take Gleevec after surgery 
it's important that you have some form of what we call surveillance, which is regular checkups and imaging after your surgery so that we could detect an early recurrence. If your gist comes back, it is still treatable and perhaps curable depending on uh, how it comes back. So we would like to find the recurrence as early as possible. Most patients are recommended to have a CT scan every six months for three to five years, and perhaps after that yearly for as long as 10 years after surgery. The highest risk period for when your tumor might come back is the first several years after surgery or the first several years after you stop taking Gleevec following surgery. The guidelines for how often patients should have uh, imaging studies and how long the surveillance should go on are regularly updated. Um, so you may start a plan of doing something, um, but before you reach the end of your surveillance period, the recommendations uh, may change. In general, over time, we've gone to less x-rays. We used to do them every three months, and now we've moved to every six months. In many cases, hopefully, the gist, your gist would be cured by surgery or by a combination of surgery and taking Gleevec after surgery. However, if that is unsuccessful and your gist does in fact come back, then additional treatments are necessary. The, where gist comes back is somewhat restricted, so most cases of gist recur with tumors in the liver or on the lining surfaces of the abdomen called the peritoneum. These recurrence locations can easily be found on routine CT or MRI scan. It is rare for just to go outside the abdomen to the lungs or other sites, so generally people do not need whole body scans. Many cancers are treated with radiation and chemotherapy. Um, GIST is not commonly treated with either one of these. Radiation may be useful for some patients with GIST um, for specific problems like severe pain, especially in the bones, or if there's recurrent tumor bleeding that is not otherwise controllable. Chemotherapy is generally not used for GIST, although it is commonly used for other cancers. In the past, we've uh, extensively tested many forms of chemotherapy and found them to be ineffective. What is the most common treatment these days for GIST is something called targeted treatments, and Dr. George will talk more specifically about the drugs that are used. These targeted treatments have been designed to slow and stop the growth of a GIST by blocking the activity of certain gene mutations. Most GISTs have a mutation in something called the KIT or PDGFRA gene. These mutations cause rogue activity of the KIT protein or the PDGFRA protein. These rogue proteins act as the energy supply center for the tumors and cause the cells to grow abnormally and form a tumor. These altered proteins, however, can be targeted by certain drugs which cause the tumor cells to stop growing or even to die. These drugs work by in inactivating the mutant kit or PDGFRA proteins that cause GIST. The drugs have to fit exactly into the mutant protein, much like the precise fit between a key and the lock that it opens. For patients with high risk or advanced GIST, it is important to know what type of mutation is present in the tumor. 
some mutations cause partial or complete resistance to a particular drug and thereby alter the treatment approach that would be used. Target treatments will be discussed more extensively by Dr. George. Finally, a word on communicating uh, with your health team. Patients with GIST are often diagnosed by GI specialists, primary care doctors, or surgeons. Following diagnosis, most patients should be referred to a medical oncology specialist to complete their care team. Because GIST tumors are uncommon, it is important to try and find an oncology specialist who knows about GIST. It is not uncommon in the United States for a very busy oncologist to only have zero to two GIST patients under their care. Many oncologists can go years without seeing a single patient with GIST. In order to find an appropriate specialist for your care, you can access lists of GIST specialists online at the websites for the LifeRaft Group, GIST Support International, or the GIST Cancer Research Fund. I suggest that you ask your doctor how many GIST patients are you currently treating. If the number is small, I would consider strongly interviewing other doctors before choosing one. You should review your pathology test carefully with your doctor to make sure your doctor agrees with the diagnosis and risk assessment. Most patients should have mutation testing of their tumor. If your doctor resists testing a tumor without a good reason, you might want to consider switching doctors. Dr. George will be talking about targeted therapy, but I would add here that these targeted therapies are pills that you have to take for many months or years. There can be side effects from these pills, and you need to be in close communication with your doctor about side effects. In many cases, there are very effective supportive care treatments to help you better tolerate your treatment. If your doctor is not willing to work with you closely, then again, I would suggest that you interview other doctors who could be more responsive uh, in treating your, your concerns. And with that, I will turn back to the moderator. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Heinrich. That was really outstanding and just really a lot of information for people to absorb. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Suzanne George. Dr. George is Clinical Director, Senior Physician, Center for Sarcoma and Bone Oncology, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. George is going to address new treatment approaches, including the role of targeted therapy, how clinical trials contribute to treatment options, and pain and symptom management. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. George. Well, thank you so much uh, for that introduction. And I really also want to thank Dr. Heinrich for his overview um, as re in, in relation to GIST. Um, I want to pick up on um, a portion of the discussion that Dr. Heinrich um, just laid ahead for us. Specifically, the importance of the protein called KIT and its sister protein called PDGF receptor alpha. These are particular proteins that are present in GIST that have mutations in them that we think are the mutations that drive the, um, the biologic activity of the GIST cells and subsequently GIST tumors. The understanding of the role of KIT and PDGF receptor alpha in GIST has been such an important um, understanding in the biology of these tumors. It's really served as the model uh, for targeted therapy in solid tumor oncology. What we know, as Dr. Heinrich mentioned, 
is that we now have drugs that can work by binding these mutated proteins, meaning KIT or PGF receptor alpha, in order to act as a key in the lock to sort of shut off the growth signals that, these abnormal, that this abnormal protein is um, sending inside the GIST cell. And that really serves the basis for the importance of targeted therapy in GIST. We know that in, in GIST tumors, tumors are essentially defined by one primary mutation. So at the time of initial diagnosis, a GIST typically has one mutation in either KIT or Peter Jeff receptor alpha, most often in KIT. And that's the protein, and that's the mutation that we um, target our therapies towards in the hopes of shutting off the signaling into the cells and therefore by treating the tumor. Although localized GIST is primarily treated with surgery as the backbone and sometimes in combination with drug therapy, in the setting of advanced GIST, drug therapy is really the backbone of treatment. And when I say advanced GIST, I mean GIST that has recurred or come back and GIST that has spread from the primary site to other sites within the body, most commonly other sites within the abdomen or multiple sites in the liver. Now, the first drug that was developed for use in GIST is imatinib. Imatinib is a relatively narrow-spectrum tyrosine kinase inhibitor that blocks KIT very well. And it blocks the most common mutations that we see in GIST very well. And after the introduction of imatinib, it, the whole field of GIST management has changed dramatically because the drug has been so effective in, excuse me, in patients with this disease, both in the advanced setting and for patients who have had surgery for high-risk disease, imatinib has been shown to reduce um, the likelihood of the tumor come back and help people um, live longer. So imatinib, um, again, is the backbone of therapy, particularly in first-line treatment for advanced GIST. Now, we also know that despite how well imatinib works, that over time, frequently, resistance mutations or additional mutations in KIT can develop. And these can develop in a way that imatinib is no longer effective. This is where we come into additional or second-line therapy with tar additional targeted drugs. Sunitinib is the standard therapy of second-line treatment in GIST. Sunitinib is, um, works by the same principle of imatinib in that it is targeted against the KIT protein, which we know is the primary driver in this disease, but it's shaped a little bit differently, and so it can fit into some of these um, mutations more effectively after imatinib is no longer doing, working as well as we might like it to. And similar to imatinib, sunitinib um, will benefit the majority of patients that take the drug, which again has really changed how we approach our disease, this, the treatment of this disease. Similar to imatinib, however, there also can be on sunitinib the development of additional mutations that make, that make the tumor resistant to sunitinib treatment. And standard third-line therapy is, again, another targeted drug, again, very much targeted towards KIT, but shaped slightly different than either imatinib or sunitinib. This drug is called regorafenib, 
and has been shown to be effective in patients after previous treatment with imatinib and sunitinib. In general, patients stay on one drug for as long as it's effective, and that can be, um, and that can be quite long periods of time. It's when one drug becomes ineffective that we'll go down um, and consider changes to these other second and third line targeted therapies. Now, we know that even with the major strides that have been made in targeted treatment in GIST, that additional treatments are still necessary. We need to be able to do better, and that's where clinical trials play such a key role in this disease. Clinical trials are how we learn about new new drugs. It's where we determine if a drug is effective in a certain disease, and we also learn what the safety profile of these, certain, of these drugs are, what are the side effects like. And depending on the stage of development of drugs, <clears throat> the emphasis of the trial can either be more towards safety or more towards what we call efficacy or benefit. Although in the majority of trials, both of these factors are studied closely. Currently in GIST, we're really entering an exciting time of clinical trial development. There are a number of drugs that are being developed for, specifically for GIST, and these are drugs that are being developed based on the biology and the, um, the biology that we've learned about this tumor over the last 10 to 15 years that we've been using targeted therapies. The majority of trials in GIST will again be looking at kit, what we call kit-directed therapies or drugs that are really focused on blocking this kit signaling, but perhaps do it in a slightly different way than any of the current approved therapies. Some of these compounds are extraordinarily precise in, their, uh, in the targets that they inhibit. They may inhibit one or two of the most common resistance mutations in GIST, for example, or they may be directed against a um, very unique target in GIST that we call D842V of the Peter Jeff receptor alpha gene. And this is, a, this is a target that none of our therapies work so well against, but that there's a lot of promise on the horizon for some new therapies that are coming. In addition, there are, there are drugs that are being developed that are less specific, that perhaps kit, hit kit in a broader spectrum, perhaps somewhat less dependent on where the specific mutation is. Um, exactly how well these approaches will work, we'll learn over time, but it is very exciting that these are compounds that are now getting into human trials, where first patients are just now being, um, uh, being exposed to these drugs so that we can help to develop them in a safe, effective, and rational way in GIST. It's also important to know that within the concept of clinical trials, we're also developing new types of laboratory tests to help us monitor GIST. The standard way of us monitoring GIST is using imaging, and typically CAT scans and sometimes MRIs. And we know that that's the best way for us to actually measure the tumor and to see is it growing, is it shrinking, is it stable, and using that information to help us assess the effectiveness of the treatments. We know that um, in some cancers, what we're doing now is starting to look into the bloodstream to see is there a blood marker or some marker of circulating DNA from the tumor that's being shed into the bloodstream to help us further understand the status of the tumor and how our treatments are affecting that. And right now, this is something we call circulating free tumor DNA. This remains a research test. 
This is not something that you can that your doctor can order, or um, it is done part of routine clinical care. But it's an increasingly important test that's being incorporated into many of our clinical trials, so that we can develop novel strategies of detecting the disease and detecting the benefits of our treatments of GIST while we're concurrently developing, hopefully, more strategies to treat the disease. And for all these reasons, clinical trials are very much um, an important um, and really critical um, component to the treatment options in GIST. In the last few moments, I just want to switch my comments towards pain and symptom management. As Dr. Heinrich mentioned, the, the compounds that are approved and that we use in GIST are all oral therapies. Many of the new drugs that we're using in clinical trials similarly are oral therapies. But because they're pills and they're taken daily, um, they certainly are not without risk of side effect. <clears throat> What's important is that whether someone is taking a treatment, albeit a standard treatment like imatinib, sunitinib, or regorafenib, or whether someone's on a research trial, it's very important to stay in good communication with your care team and to discuss any symptoms that you experience related to your treatment. This is really a key part of the care of patients with GIST. And this is because we want to be sure that patients are able to tolerate their treatments in order to stay on their treatments. One of the most common reasons that people stop taking treatment is because they feel because they're having too many side effects. But what we find is that if we're able to keep an open line of communication regarding those side effects together with the care team, that patients very rarely need to stop drug because of toxicity. Far more commonly, we're able to work together our care teams, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, together with our patients in order to treat those symptoms, to provide additional support, to make this, these tolerable drugs so that people can stay on them and live at the highest quality of life, even while being treated concurrently with cancer. I think the entire paradigm of GIST has really been an excellent example of living with cancer. It's, um, you know, as well as we've come with regard to treating this disease, if the disease has come back, we have yet to find a cure, but we've developed treatment strategies and supportive strategies so that people can live with this disease and function at a very high level for long periods of time. So in keeping that line of communication open is critical, and um, we, again, we want to make sure that the, the therapies that we've developed um, can be used in a way to help optimize uh, outcomes for sure. And with that, I'm going to uh, turn the, uh, the conversation back to the moderator. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. George. That was really quite um, an amazing presentation and also quite eloquent in terms and also very... Um, hopeful for all the participants to hear um, your, what you presented. So thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next presenter is Caroline Edlin. Caroline is an oncology social worker. She is um, our online support group uh, program director at Cancer Care. And Ms. Edlin is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Edlin. 
Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. And I would like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with GIST and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways that we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and their family and friends and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York area, as well as telephone and online groups. These groups offer a unique opportunity to speak with other people impacted by GIST or cancer, along with the help of a cancer care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned today from, from the program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this means for you and your family. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help. So please contact us at 1-800-813-4673 or log on to your web, our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Evelyn. That was um, excellent and, and, and a wonderful resource for everybody to have on this call. Um, and we have um, also had those other resources that we also mentioned as well for everybody. So there's lots of help out there for everyone. And now, and of course your healthcare team. And now we have time for questions. I really want to thank our speakers for allowing all this time for questions. And so we're going to, um, I'm going to ask Stephanie to bring all of our speakers on board. And also if Stephanie would explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and then we'll try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get to your question, I will then um, let you all know what to do in terms of getting your questions answered. But let's see if we can take most of your questions right now. Um, so um, this is your chance, Stephanie. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Richard C. Your line is open. Richard, if your line is on mute, can you please unmute it? We'll move on to our next can question. You? Our next question comes from Lori T. Your line is open. Hi there. Um, nice to uh, speak with you all. I was, uh, my husband and I were just at the oncologist yesterday and just started taking vitamin C approximately a month ago. 
He was taking a three 500 milligram tablets a day to try to combat colds. And his oncologist um, said to him, that will counteract the activation of Gleevec. Is this correct? Thank you for that question, uh, Laurie. Thank you. And um, uh, Dr. Heinrich, could you address that question? Um, not that I'm aware. I don't know if Dr. George has any different thought on that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not aware of that either. I'm, I'm certainly, you know, there is often a um, concern raised of giving um, high doses of antioxidants in the setting of anti-cancer therapy based on how some traditional chemotherapies and radiation therapy might um, try to kill the cancer cells, but just does not, that, that's a theoretic risk that people raise, but, um, but Gleevec and imatinib doesn't work uh, through a mechanism that I'm aware of and uh, vitamin C causing a problem with it all. You need to avoid grapefruit juice and certain kind of exotic citrus fruits like yeah. Seville oranges and star fruit and things that are kind of at a high-end grocery store perhaps, but it's not because of the vitamin C. It's because of other things present in those types of fruits. So Ashley, Lori, we might recommend that you go back to your treating healthcare team, let him know what you heard today, um, perhaps ask him if he has some reference for this. and. Um, and then um, you could seek a second opinion, or what do, what do our medical speakers feel about that, or what difficult? Um, I, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, going back and talking to, to the doctor and just saying, you know, we, you can certainly share with him our experience and, um, and see if they have exactly, you know, try to understand more the concern. Thank you. I hope that's helpful, Lori, and um, thank you. Um, and we have a question from one of our online participants, um, and that question is, um, so uh, from Aaron, are there any new therapies in the pipeline for SDH deficient GIST? Uh, Dr. Um, George, would you like to address that question? Um, sure. So just to um, put that into context for people that aren't familiar, SDH deficient GIST is a unique subtype of GIST. Um, it does not harbor one of the activating mutations in KIT or Peter Jeff receptor alpha that um, I had alluded to earlier. Instead, um, both the KIT gene and, and the Peter Jeff receptor alpha gene are, are, do not show any mutations. But instead what we see is that there's a um, uh, often an, an abnormality in something called succinate dehydrogenase um, that leads to what we call SDH deficiency by some patho by by a certain pathologic assessment. This is SDH deficient gist is the type of gist that tends to occur more commonly in children, uh, adolescents, and even young adults. Um, if one looks at the age distribution, by the time um, by the time someone's if you see just diagnosed over the age of 30 and certainly over the age of 40, that's when those mutations are very common. But if you're looking at just diagnosed age 20 or younger, it's almost always SDH deficient. And then it's sort of in, diagnosed in the 20s or early 30s, that's where you may see both, either SDH deficient just or kit mutant just. So um, to answer your question more specifically, SDH deficient gist is, is uh, an area that I think there's a lot of interest in. People are looking at um, uh, 
multi-targeted kinase inhibitors that have a, have a fair bit of what's called VEGF inhibition. Regorafenib, which is approved for GIST, has shown some activity in SDH-deficient tumors. Sunitinib, which is approved for GIST, has also shown some activity in SDH-deficient tumors. And then what I think we're looking forward to are some of the upcoming studies that may be um, have, have targeted therapies that are directed against the KIT protein, which is expressed on SDH-deficient GIST. Um, although it may not be mutated, it might not carry one of these activation mutations, it still is the protein present. Um, and as some of those compounds get further along in their development that might be somewhat agnostic to a mutation, uh, that may be an area uh, that SDH-deficient tumors um, may have new opportunity. Dr. Heinrich, do you want to add anything to that or give us Yeah, I mean, it's clear that, that FDA-deficient GIST are completely different in most aspects from conventional GIST. We're going to have to look for new approaches. There are some you know, more fundamental changes in things like glucose metabolism that are present in FDA-deficient GIST that are different from conventional GIST. We are, you know, exploring new ways of treating them. You know, one thing that's, you know, kind of interesting and, you know, potentially helpful for the future is that, you know, most cells could use either aerobic or anaerobic metabolism, so they can either use oxygen or not. Tumor cells prefer not to use oxygen. It's a little bit more efficient for them, but they can. In contrast, SDH-deficient cells cannot use oxygen. So strategies, metabolic strategies that force the tumors to have to, to force cells to have to use oxygen would not have an effect on normal cells because they could use oxygen, but SDH-deficient cells would not be able to. And so so-called, you know, metabolic therapies are beginning to be tested in, you know, in the test tube. And if, you know, that proves promising, we'll probably move forward into the clinic. Um, and there's similar types of defects of metabolism in other types of cancer besides GIST. So, you know, a lot of people in other types of cancer are working on similar concepts, and it's always good when lots of people are working on your problem. It tends to get solved faster. Thank you. Very excellent. And, and our next question? Our next question comes from Sarah R. Your line is open. Thank you. This is uh, an excellent uh, set of presentations. Uh, I wanted to know, just as it relates actually to the SDH question, the role of mutational testing um, in the standard of care of patients and how we can get that more adopted among the physician community. Thank you for that question. Um, I'll, I'll go first if that's okay. okay. Yeah. Um, well, I think, so it, it's important. Um, in, in terms of choosing a drug therapy or even the dose of the drug in GIST, that's very important. Personally, I think everyone who has a GIST that has more than a 5% chance of ever coming back should have testing um, to help kind of guide thoughts and discussions. I think, you know, it's still not commonly being done in the United States, but more and more cancers of other types, lung cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, Doctors are needing to know mutation testing in those types of tumors, and more and more large panels or even complete genome sequencing um, laboratories are 
available. And so it's becoming quite common in all cancers, and I think that will eventually overcome sort of the the slow uptake of mutation testing in GIST um, because it will just become standard that all tumors are going to be extensively tested for mutations. Besides the, you know, selecting the therapy, in the case of SDH-deficient tumors, that is the one type of tumor which can be inherited, and so there are implications in trying to figure out why you got a GIST. If it is an SDH-deficient GIST, did you inherit it? And if you did inherit it, you know, how to interact with the rest of your family, your children, your siblings, your parents, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, um, because they could be at risk too. And if we knew what was wrong that caused your GIST, there's ways that they could be tested to determine whether or not they're at risk. And then there's strategies, screening strategies that could be used to decrease their risk of getting a, a serious GIST. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to follow up on that, I, I would just add that in very general terms, you know, years years ago, um, testing, mutation testing in GIST was really done in the context of clinical trials and clinical research, and our treatment options were pretty limited. I mean, when we used to only have imatinib, then we only had imatinib. Um, but now what's happened is we've learned so much about the, about the tumors that um, it, that understanding the mutational profile of the tumor can have impact in um, our drug choice, perhaps, in our, the doses that we use, um, and can really impact clinical care. In the past, years ago, maybe not. And that's, I think, why some of the patterns of not testing have developed. But now we're in a different era. And understanding the mutational profile, it might not have clinical impact for everybody, but there certainly are some people that it could impact care. And I think the more we communicate that through forums like this um, with the patient community as well as with the, with the provider community, I think that's also where we'll will continue to see an increase in shift and change. And I would also add that in addition, there are some clinical trials now that are being developed that will be specific to certain mutations. And uh, that's another reason why it's worth understanding uh, exactly what mutation people have. Excellent. Thank you, Cecily. An excellent discussion. Thank you. Um, another question from one of our online participants from Steve. How long should high-risk patients continue drug therapy if there's no evidence of disease? Um, Dr. George, do you want to address that? So that's, that is a really good question, and it's a question that uh, the field still does not know the optimal answer to. I think that's the most honest thing I can say. Um, what we know is that there have been um, a couple of, there have been several studies that have done that have tried to answer this question of optimal duration of imatinib after, um, after surgery of high-risk patients with GIST. Uh, the first study that was done really didn't risk stratify very much, and it was looking at one year of imatinib versus no imatinib at all. And what we found was that one year was better than no years. And then a follow-up study, which has really probably made the biggest impact in the field, was a study um, that was done that looked at three years of imatinib in high-risk GIST versus one year of imatinib. And it showed that three years was better than one year. 
What we don't know is, is three years sort of the best? Or is three years is longer better than shorter? Right now, the standard is uh, at least three years. Some people feel that, which is true, which is that that's really all the data we have. So oftentimes, at the three-year mark, the drug will be discontinued because that's really what the study showed. It was three years better than one year. We didn't have a lot of information beyond that. On the other hand, people have interpreted the data to say, well, it just seems that longer is better than, than shorter. So if three years is better than one year, will five years be better than three years? Or will some longer time be better? And the, the reality is we don't know the answer. And so when it comes time to discuss um, stopping imatinib after three years versus continuing, to me that's very much a, a discussion between um, the provider team and the patient to talk about the individual risks for that person and what's known and what's unknown and what the risks and benefits are of staying on versus stopping. And I don't know, Dr. Heinrich, how you approach that issue. Um, I agree with everything you said. Um, it's, you know, it's a discussion. There, you know, one thing that we some, I sometimes discuss with patients is at the three-year mark, if, if people are at a very high risk of recurrence based on what we found at surgery, you know, we sometimes discuss, well, there's a five-year study that's been going on, but we don't know any results, so maybe we should continue your treatment until five years or until we find out the results. So some of the decisions are a little bit dynamic because there's other studies or information that may come in the future. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a slippery slope. You know, if you're 40 years old, and you t start taking GIST or start taking Gleevec after surgery, um, you know, if, if, if we thought that it should be given indefinitely, which we have no proof of, but if that's sort of the bias, then you're talking about taking a therapy, you know, for 40 or 50 years that you may not even need because you may have been cured. So it's very individualized decision and generally, I only make a plan to go to three years, and then everything else is we'll go for six more months, and then we'll reevaluate the evidence and talk more. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Very, very informative. Wonderful questions and fantastic discussion in terms of helping people to grapple with the, their questions. So thank you. And our next question, Stephanie? Our next question comes from Richard C. Your line is open. Hi. It's Richard K. Can you hear me? Yes, Richard. Yes. Uh, so immunotherapy is the new IT treatment. Is there any data or anecdotal information on this type of treatment for GIST? Well, thank you for your question, Richard. Um, Dr. Heinrich, would you like to address that question? Um, we would all love to, to know the answer to that question. Um, there is not much data that's been published. There have there, the most, there has been one study at Memorial Sloan Kettering combining desatinib plus ipilimumab. Um, which I have not really seen any results. Maybe there will be some in June. Um, we know from the experience of using immunotherapy in general and other tumors that it works for some tumors and not others or some subtypes of tumors and not others. There's not been a great way to predict for which diseases or patients it would be effective. So, you know, we clearly need to do a study and to see some results and then try to understand the results and can we do better um, in selecting patients for this treatment. Thank you. Excellent. 
We have a question from Susan. Um, are certain uh, popular Dr. Oh, Sorry, have any comments on that? <laughs> no, I agree completely. It's uh, we're, we still need to learn more. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Um, thank you both, actually. And um, I have a question from Susan online. Um, so are there certain population groups that are more susceptible to GIST? Um, and just a kind of general question from, is that something that would be helpful to people to know about? Not that we know of. It seems, at least in the studies that have been published of different populations around the world, the, um, the rate at which people develop per unit population, so like per million people, that rate seems pretty similar around the world. And we don't know of any particular racial, ethnic, geographic variation in GIST. Um, and our next question, um, Stephanie? Our next question comes from Joanne I. Your line is open. Hi, I actually have two quick questions. One, is there any more knowledge gain, being gained on esophageal GIST? And my second question is, if a second cancer not related to GIST is detected, does that increase or do it have any effect on the possible risk factor for forming new GISTs? Excellent questions. Thank you, Joan. Um, Dr. Um, uh, George, would you want to address those questions? Um, Let's sure. start that part of it. <laughs> yep, sure. So um, with regard to esophageal gist, I mean, it's an uncommon location, but certainly one that um, occurs. I, the, I, I'm not aware, you know, are the treatment strategies and fundamental principles of treatment are essentially the same um, in terms of ideally um, removing the tumor, but sometimes in the esophagus that can be a real challenge. So it's not uncommon that imatinib is used in a preoperative setting um, because the surgical challenges in the esophagus are often uh, different than when the gist is in the stomach or the small intestine. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the the, the question about uh, secondary second cancers, I think that if it, it's not clear that developing a secondary cancer necessarily predicts for more GIST, but um, as a sort of a general approach, if someone has GIST and they develop another cancer, um, it's, it's important to talk about that with your care team because there may be some syndromes. Um, as Dr. Heinrich had men er, mentioned earlier, SDH deficient can at times be associated uh, not only as a hereditary issue but also can be associated with other uh, neoplasms or other types of growths that can occur. Um, uh, and so it's, it, and, and kit mutant just, um, patients with kit mutant just can get other cancers, um, but it doesn't necessarily predispose to more GIST. When you have more than one cancer, though, you want to talk to your doctor about it just to be sure that you don't need extra testing or that there isn't something driving the development of multiple cancers. And Dr. Heinrich, do you want to No, I agree with all that. I mean, sometimes it's tricky, you know, if you need surgery or if you need radiation or chemotherapy for another cancer, then you'll have to work closely with your oncologist if you're, you know, taking a drug like imatinib or sunitinib you might have to stop taking treatment for a while, depending on what is being proposed. Um, and those are kind of tricky decisions. 
Um, you're kind of balancing the risk of, you know, what's the bigger problem, not treating the GIST or not taking care of the other cancer. Um, and so you can't always treat both of them simultaneously. Excellent. Um, we have one light-breaking question from one of our um, online participants, from Dana. Um, I had a liver resection done where all my, of my tumors were located. They, um, they have come back and now spread to my bones. All the tumors were tested when removed and known to be exon 11. My doctor does not agree that a new biopsy would benefit me. I have read that many just come back a different mutation. What is your opinion about having a new biopsy? Um, I've already been on Gleevec and suit tent getting ready to start Divarga. Um, my original tumor started outside my small intestine. I was misdiagnosed at the time, and then it was found in my liver three years later. So this is a long question, and actually, um, of course, our physicians can't provide a consult, but if, they could, if um, you could give just some general guidelines, which might help um, yeah. Dana and perhaps other people on the call as well with um, similar types of questions. Um, Dr. Hammer, do you want to go first on that one? Yeah, so, you know, we would like to think that doing a biopsy would make us smarter and we could find a second mutation and that would help guide therapy. The problem is that when you have more than one tumor, we've done studies and we find that you have different mutations in different tumors or sometimes even different mutations in the same tumor. So doing a biopsy, you could get one answer, and if you move the needle two millimeters, you could get a different answer. In most cases, unfortunately, with the drugs we have, they're not going to be effective against every single mutation. Um, so tailoring your therapy based on a biopsy, we don't think is wise that you should follow sort of the standard treatment outlines. Um, and it, you know, so we don't recommend routine biopsies unless there's a question that, you know, what's in your bone is not actually GIST um, it, because you had a history of breast cancer or something like that, in which case getting a biopsy to know what you're dealing with is prudent. In, in, in the future, maybe doing the liquid, you know, blood-based testing that Dr. George described might help us, um, but we don't know that that testing is accurate or efficient or sensitive. And we don't actually know that making a decision based on a test would be better than what experience has already taught us would be the best thing to do in a given situation. Excellent. And Dr. Um, George, you want to add anything? Or? No, I, I agree completely. Okay. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. Excellent, outstanding. And I also want to thank all of our participants um, for asking such really, for being on the call, but also for asking such great questions. Um, and uh, I, this is a one-hour one workshop, and that we recognize that there are many more questions and, um, and many more needs that you all have that go far beyond the scope of one hour. So I first want to address the issue of any questions you may have. So if you should have any questions that are medically-oriented questions, I do suggest you can call any one of the organizations that we listed um, on actually initially, and we'll send those resources again to you, um, the organization's um, Life Raft Group, um, GIST Cancer Research Fund, or GIST Support International. Those are organizations that actually, um, and there's also uh, Life Raft Canada as well. Those are organizations that you can contact who might be able to help you with your medical questions. You also can call the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. 
and they, their information specialists can be very helpful to you. And of course, you do want to go back and ask your healthcare team for very informed, you know, really to, to now that you have some additional information. If you should have any questions that have to do with your practical or financial or just needs emotional support or social support, counseling services, please do contact Cancer Care. Our oncology social workers are here to help you. And you can reach our oncology social workers at 1-800-813-4673. Again, 1-800-813-4673. Or you can um, visit our website and pose a question there as well. Most importantly, as we conclude our program today, we don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with GIST or in ca with cancer. Um, we want you, or with any questions or concerns you may have, please do understand that you're part of this rubric of cancer care. We're here to help you, and you can contact us at any time. Again, I want to thank you very much for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a wonderful day.